So the title for today's talk is the same as the title for the retreat, namely, Practicing for Life and Death. Quite a challenge indeed. The poet Pablo Neruda, I think he sets out the challenge very well in a poem called Night. He says, I want neither to know nor to dream. Who can teach me not to be, to live without going on living? How does the water keep on flowing? Which is a heaven of stones? Staying still until the great migrations fix the path of flight and ultimately travel on the winds of the frozen archipelagos. Still, with the secret life of an underground city grown tired of its streets, hidden under the earth, and no one knows it exists. It has neither hands nor markets, and feeds on its own silence. At some point, to be invisible, to speak without words, to hear only certain drops falling, only the flight of a certain shadow. Repeating some verses again. Who can teach me not to be, to live without going on living? Or for those of you who know some Spanish, ¿Quién puede enseñarme a no ser, a vivir sin seguir viviendo? In other words, can we learn how to live without going on living in our habitual ways? So I'll start by recounting, reminding you what those habitual ways are. I developed this theme more thoroughly a couple of weeks ago in a talk I gave at the Garrison Institute, uh, entitled Stranded. In the talk, I argued that out of sheer apprehension about the inconstancy, the impermanency of, of things, we usually choose to abscond cast ourselves away from the flow of life. And, and in doing that, we become stranded. We become cast away in fortified islands that we contrive for ourselves. Of course, feel secure, sure. 
No question about that, uh, at times anyway. Now those islands, of course, the fortresses we contrive, at times they are tangible ones, like when we move to live, say, in a gated community. In a big isolated mansion somewhere. But more often than not, these islands that we contrive are intangible. Whichever case, we end up stuck in that citadel, separated from the flow of life. It's no longer a matter of life. It's a matter of my life. It's no longer a matter of home. It's a matter of my home. It's no longer a matter of children. It's my children. We dedicate our lives to distinguish between what is mine and what's alien. My island and the presumably shark-infested waters surrounding it. As I pit my life against all life apart from mine, I surely, inevitably, must pit my life against my death. No wonder death becomes an abomination. And as an abomination, it must be ignored, resisted, dreaded, or all of that. We ignore it in a myriad of ways. We certainly, it's not correct to talk about the dead. We, talk like, we, we use euphemisms like the deceased or the departed. In this part of the world, we never see a body around, like, like we see in, in, in India, you know, bodies all over the place, being carried, not embalmed bodies, just corpses, just corpses, by the wayside, whatever, being attended, but being shown too, not here. At most, we have a, an opportunity to see the, an embellished corpse in the funeral home for a moment through a little hole, and that's it. And then, as death is forthcoming, we don't acknowledge that. You know, hospital workers are famous for going around the business, around a person that's at the verge of dying, and they continue their routine, just plugging them in and plugging them out and taking records and uh, getting busy around them without any touch of human warmth accompanying the dying 
person. All these, of course, are forms of resistance, understandable, sure. Once we pit our life against death, or the life of anybody else against their death, surely we've got to resist it. And when all these forms of denial and resistance are exhausted, there's still one left. And that's to take the body, one's own body perhaps, at the verge of dying, and freeze it in liquid nitrogen. Believe it or not, it's done by many. It's called cryonics. And this procedure is done in the expectation that eventually, it's a big expectation, eventually medicine will advance to the point of curing the disease, prolonging life much longer than it does nowadays, <laughs> and also find a way of thawing that frozen corpse, you know, <laughs> and resuscitating. And you know what? Cryonics is a thriving business. It's not publicized very often, but there's millions and millions of dollars that go that way. Of course, cryonics may not be your or my cup of tea. But still, the idea is to wage war against death. And all you have to do is go to any of these bookstores that have shelves d devoted, say, to death. You'll find titles like this one, for instance, Fight, Cancer, and Win. It's, it's a war language. The, the main problem with going to war is that the more we insist on winning that war, on positive thinking about the illness, whatever, the more rampant becomes the alternative, which is defeat. One, one way how this defeat can manifest itself is the iconic ticking clock. Oops. Are you ready for death, it says, and uh, there's a clock uh, that has just a few minutes to go be before 12 o'clock, presumably midnight. Strange enough, this particular image I got from the cover of Buddha Dharma, a spiritual enlightened publication that I, I guess it should know better than playing with fears, but surely it helps selling it, I'm sure. The ticking clock metaphor brings home the fact 
that the island that we strand ourselves in, in my life, our life, whatever, is bound not only by boundaries that separated from other islands, but also is bound by time. We insist in believing, we do believe, that we originated from scratch at conception, and that we will go back to zilch at death. Uh, I'm familiar with the language of DNA because I used to be a geneticist and my, I could almost call it a previous life. And so that's one way we can talk about. Um, sure, of course, nobody denies that they, they get the DNA from their parents. Sure, but, the, but it's a different combination, a unique combination. And so because of that, we feel entitled to ignore our sources, unless, of course, we have to blame our parent for this. And, and it comes in very handy. <laughs> and it, it's itself, uh, the DNA becomes our intellectual property. No, no matter that's largely plagiarism, but still, <laughs> we, we decide this is it. It's mine. It was never around before. There was only just little bits floating around. And, and we tempted to do a little bit the same thing with the world. I can see myself. Look, I was born in 1926. Somehow, I draw a line there when I look at events in the world. Anything before 1926, it's dismissible. It feels alien, dull. I mean, forget about World War I. Now, World War II, that was something different. That was real. Of course, it's understandable. But, but it happens. And I can see myself dismissing what's going to occur after my death. And wow, that's, that's quite a relief, right? Yeah. I mean, the way things are going. <laughs> so, I've been sort of recounting the way we strand ourselves in an island. I strand myself in an island that I myself contrived both in time and in space. And the issue is, how can I get out of this person? Now, there are, it's true, a good number of religious formulations that seem, seem to indicate a way out. Like, say, a belief in an afterlife, or belief in reincarnation. But, but this is not a real way out. It's just another narrative. It, it goes on in our head, but in our heart, we're still as imprisoned as we were before. Transformation requires much more than that. 
it requires that we dismantle the traps that we have contracted, constructed in our hearts and minds. The Buddha reminded us repeatedly that we should, that we do stop seeing ourselves as fixed and separate beings. I need to demote I, me, mine, so that they just become convenient words. But to know, to know that the direct experience, the real experience of being alive is one of interaction. Or as Tittenachan would say, of interbeing. I don't mean interaction as those selective symbioses that we build up with our parents, children, uh, partners, whatever, whoever. But uh, I mean an interactivity that's fully open. In other words, not just to take two islands instead of one and make a little archipelago there, two <laughs> islands. <laughs> connected to with a bridge whatever you know I mean open up to stop seeing the shores of the islands as barriers to understand that water and air instead of isolating the islands connect them that the ecology connects everything together As I said before, one way how we plant the seeds of separation in our mind is by the thoughts, by the thought of being born from scratch. And the Buddha says, if we see ourselves as unborn, that is, not born from scratch, as unborn, then the king of death will not, not see us. He elaborates uh, this a little more in another passage, talking to the monks. He says, there is monks, an unborn, unbecome, unmade, unfabricated. If there were not that unborn, unbecome, unmade, unfabricated, there would not be the case that emancipation from the born, become, made, fabricated would be discerned. But precisely because there is an unborn, unbecome, unmade, unfabricated, emancipation from the born became made, fabricated, is discerned. couldn't be more clear. In another passage, the Buddha says, the Buddha describes this realization 
as the renunciation of all paraphernalia of becoming. I find that a beautiful sentence. All paraphernalia of becoming. This is all stuff that we lay on top of reality, not here. Let me try to be more concrete and use a, a metaphor for what I'm trying to say. I went to the web the other day to see about islands. And I discovered that all oceanic islands, it doesn't apply necessarily to river islands, all oceanic islands, or nearly all, or most of them anyway, are volcanic islands. That is, that the result of volcanic eruptions. They are the result of the rearrangement of the bottom of the sea. Isn't that wonderful? That's a metaphor for us. As islands, not only are we connected, but we originated from the bottom of the sea. And you know what? Eventually, many of these islands, and each one of us, of course, goes back to the bottom of the sea. There was this famous island of Krakatoa, right, that disappeared. And, I mean, it, islands have long lives. Now, compared to flies, we also have long lives anyway. <laughs> So, here you are. As Neruda would say, who can teach me not to be, to live without going on living? I guess the volcanic islands can. But really, the deep teachings do not come from thoughts, from ideas, but from practice. And that's what our practice is about. On the cushion and out of the cushion. To learn how to live without going on living in the usual ways. On the cushion, we open up to the ebb and flow of experience. We focus on the breath as we did today, on sensations, on the ferment in our hearts and mind, uh, whatever. We don't do it as a scientist do it. <laughs> I remember the first time I sat, at the time I was a scientist, thoroughly scientist. And I immediately thought how to use the practice of walking meditation to understand anatomy and, and physiology. In other words, my tendency, like, like the tendency in our culture, as soon as you're looking at something, it becomes an object of observation, and we become the observer. 
this is not what the practice is about. The practice invites us to come to a place, and we eventually do, with, with all the sidetracking that goes on, as I did for me, but eventually we discover a way in which the knower and the known become one. That's the, the marrow of the practice. We, by learning to be with experience, we discover di directly that we are an inextricable part of the world because we're not separable from the so-called object of our experience. We are totally present with every experience. We have indeed come out of our cycle bell, ready to be with all that comes and all that goes, present with impermanence, present with mortality, with joy and, play and pain, without asking that anything be different from what it is. That's what we do on the cushion. That's what we explore doing on the cushion. Not, not all the time works like that, of course not. But even if for an instant it works like that, nobody can take that instance away from us. And then, of course, there's the rest of our life, which most of our life is off the cushion. And there, too, we have a plethora of opportunities to practice with being, at being with loss, with letting go. Loss of relationship, loss of a job, loss of physical capabilities, uh, like memories, and I'll tell you, it all skyrockets with age, you know, I promise you. <laughs> also, particularly painful is the death of those who are close to us. I was reading recently about uh, Jean Didion, however you pronounce her name, a writer, who writes about the loss of her husband of 40 years. One day they were sitting at the table, talking. Next thing he knew, she knew, he was dead. Died, totally unexpected. And it was terrible for her, excruciating for her. And then as time was, went on, she discovered she could be with that. But for that, what had to change was herself. 
She had to undergo a transformation. That's what makes life possible, our own transformation. But it's, it's not, of course, our habitual reaction, our habitual reaction to the death of a dear one is to try to create a, a monument out of the event. In fact, very often, there is a, a tendency to preserve the room of the person who just died exactly as it was during their life. Keeping up the fiction. So, we need to drop that, but not just drop the behavior, to really relate totally differently to the death of dear ones. I'm inspired by this uh, little comic strip called Shoe. I mean, there's a couple of frames. I'll, I don't know whether you can, you probably can't read it. This is the first frame, but I'll read it to you in case you can't. Um, there's Shoe, and there's this guy behind the counter. I call it the cook, whatever. He, he, he feeds customers, I suppose. And the cook says, when your time comes, life will go on without you. Pretty ominous prospect, right? <laughs> and Shu says, it already does. <laughs> Surely the, the cook's statement touches where it hurts. How can, how can things go on without the absolutely indispensable protagonist? That's me, <laughs> right? Sorry, says Shu, that's just an illusion. But in my mind, we can go further than Shu in the answer. And, and we can offer an answer that takes into account the transient nature of our volcanic island. Remember, volcanic islands come from the bottom of the sea, go back to the bottom of the sea. And so, life never goes on without the bits that make us and the bits that come out of us. So, she could have answered, it never does. In other words, the question was, I'll repeat, when your time comes, life will go on without you. And the possible answer is, it never does, it never did, it never will. 
a dear friend of, uh, of me, mine was uh, telling me about a, a party she attended for a friend of hers who was, should I say, celebrating or honoring her own impending death. She knew she was dying, and indeed she died just days after the party. Her name was Rose, and in her party, Rose went around the room telling everyone in the room what she had gotten from them. Acknowledging that she received so much from her friends. More stuff coming up from the bottom of the sea, sea to make the island of Ross, if you wish. And then she asked everybody who wanted to come and say publicly what they got from her. I think, I, I found this extremely touching. A powerful acknowledgement of all that goes on between the islands. Now, you can understand how a, a well-known Zen teacher once said to one of her students, oh, come on, you can't fall out of the universe. You can't. It's, it's, I'm not repeating, is not that the Zen teachers say to reassure her, the, his student, not do I want to reassure you. It's just a question of being open to that possibility. To be fully open to experience and through experience knowing it directly. Eti Hillesum was a Jewish Dutch woman who ended up being gassed at Auschwitz in 1943. It's extraordinary that she managed to not only keep a diary, but the diary reached us eventually. And she wrote the diary before going to Auschwitz. She knew she was uh, scheduled to go there. She was in, in holding camps, and I think it was in Holland. Just, just concentration camps. 
where people waited to be sent to Poland to be gassed. And so she talks with enormous authority about death. And I do want to share this uh, with you. She says, July 1st, 1942. She, she, she was gassed at uh, 29. She was, she was 28 years old at the time. Most of us in the West don't understand the art of suffering and experience a thousand fears instead. We cease to be alive, being full of fear, bitterness, hatred, despair. God knows it's only too easy to understand why. But when we are deprived of our lives, are we really deprived of very much? We need to accept death as part of life, even the most horrible of death. And she knows what she's talking about. All her family was with her in the camp and was gassed at the same time, too. And don't we live an entire life, each one of our days, and does it really matter if we live a few days more or less? I'm in Poland every day, on the battlefields, if that's what one can call them, the gas chambers, of course. I often see visions of poisonous green smoke. I'm with the hungry, hungry with the ill-treated and the dying every day. But I'm also with the jasmine and with that piece of sky beyond my window. There is room for everything in a single life, for believing God and for a miserable end. Five days later, she writes, a few days ago, I still thought to myself, the worst thing will be when I'm no longer allowed pencil and paper to clarify my thoughts. They are absolutely indispensable to me, for without them I shall fall apart and be utterly destroyed. But now, I know that once again, sorry, but now I know that once you begin to lower your demands and your expectations, you can let go of everything. It took me just a few days to learn that. Perhaps I shall be able to stay here for another month, but by that time any loophole in the regulations will surely have been closed. Every day I shall put my paper in order, and every day I shall say farewell. And the real farewell, when it comes, 
will only be small outward confirmation of what, of what has been accomplished within me from day to day. I feel so strange. Am I really sitting here writing things down so calmly? Would anybody understand me if I told them that I feel so strangely happy? Not bursting with it, but just plain happy. Because I can sense a new gentleman, gentleness and a new confidence growing in strongly, stronger inside me from day to day. that all the confusing and threatening and dreadful things that assail me do not drive me out of my mind for even one moment. I dare hardly write on. I don't know how to put it. It is as if I had gone almost too far in my dissociation for all that drives most people out of their minds. If I knew for certain that I should die next week, I'd still be able to sit at my desk all week and study with perfect equanimity, for I know now that life and death make a meaningful whole. Death is a gentle slipping away, even when gloom and abomination are its trappings. Whew. This woman knows what she's talking about. And then here she is, floating back to us from the bottom of the sea. Alive in our hearts. Bits of her, of course. Very significant bits of her at this very moment. 1943. 2007, 64 years later, if my math is correct. Let me once again get some help uh, from a poet to close this talk. The poet is Rilke, and this is what he says. But because truly being here is so much because everything here apparently 
needs us. This fleeting world, in some strange way, keeps calling to us. Us, the most fleeting of all, once for each thing, just once, no more. And we too, just once, and never again. But to have been this once, completely, even if only once, to have been at one with the earth, seems beyond undoing. Let's just sit for a few minutes, please. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.